and welcome to the second episode of the Council Podcast, hosted here at the Globe of the Weekend. In addition to our usual members of Brent Cameron and Ted Yarbrough, we have a new member, uh, Mr. Jeremy Hutton. So I'd like to say a warm welcome to our guests, our regular panellists, and also to Jeremy. Welcome aboard, all three of you. So how's everybody doing today? I'm very well, thanks. How are you doing, Isaac? We're doing very well, thank you. I'm doing well, thank you. So Jeremy Hutton, for our new listeners, works in public policy in the UK with a particular focus on defence and international development. He has followed Kansas closely ever since it was formed, the focus of his international relations master's thesis. That sounds very interesting. So we're looking forward to hearing about your journey to Kansas as well. So uh, we also have Brent Cameron. And how are you doing, Brent? I'm doing fine, gentlemen. I hope everyone else is doing well. It is a typical December day in Canada. Indeed. And how's it doing for you in Ted? I hope it's a little bit warmer where you are. Well, we had a wonderful warmer week. I, I biked to work on Friday in shorts, but today it is rainy and it, it's very much England or New Zealand weather. <laughs> Jeremy, is the English weather good to be here? Oh, it is. Very, very English. <laughs> Grey and dismal. Oh, yes, that's the tradition. Make strong men and women. So, so we've been led to believe, right? <laughs> And talking about the the great number of Britons who have fled the um, grey of Britain to move to other places around the world, what what led to your journey to Kansuk, Jeremy? I understand you have your international relations master's thesis. So um, mm, yes, uh, although my um, I suppose my real journey to Kansuk began long before I was even at the age to go to university. My uh, my own family has really quite deep roots with New Zealand, going back well as long as roots New Zealand can go for, you know, uh, someone of British descent. Um, <laughs> the first Hutton was in New Zealand in uh, about I think the 1850s, and every generation we seem to come and go from uh, the UK. So I, I lived in New Zealand myself when I was uh, six to seven years old, and then came back to the UK. Still got very, very deep family ties over there. Um, so I suppose in that sense, my my enthusiasm for Kanzuk is the most natural thing in the world, but even right. beyond family ties, you know, uh, one of my best friends is Canadian, another two my closest friends are Australian. Um, so for me, it really is the most common sense uh, and natural sort of political thing to push for. But from a more um, utilitarian point of view, I mean, you've got these these four great nations that have such similar political systems, have very... Uh, great bunch of their populace that share these deep family ties we share a head of state of course and it just considering the state of the world i think increasingly it makes absolutely perfect sense for our four great countries to uh, work as closely together as possible and i you know i think every 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 month there seems to be more news of how this is actually happening organically and absolutely. really i think kanzak is just a matter of time oh absolutely yes it reminds me of uh the statement, we should all hang together or we should all be hung separately. <laughs> I think could answer a lot about Kansas foreign policy in, in the world. Okay, excellent. Mm. So, so what, at what point did you really sort of think of sort of the, uh, well, most would say the, the main strata, the foundation behind Kansas is free movement of goods, services and people. At what point did those sort of click into your mind as an excellent idea that we should be working on? 
Can you, did you have I a think it was oh. around. Um, I think it was around 2016 or maybe 2015 that I first became aware of Kanzuk, and then over the next few years, I started doing little job bits of university work focused on it to really, you know, try and um, pad out my understanding of it, resulting in my master's station, which focused on it. But yeah, for me, it was really the, uh, the more political side of the idea of of Britain needing greatest ties internationally, you know, beyond Europe, because this was, of course, mm. in the uh, in the aftermath of the EU referendum, and really it did seem like Britain had a, a bright new future ahead of it. But what was that future going to be? And, of course, with Kansas, you have the most tailor-made proposal, really. Maybe not in terms of specifics, but in terms of general ambition, I think it, is, it goes perfectly well. And then um, the, my, my master's dissertation focused on the geopolitical perspective of why, for say, if you were New Zealand or if you were Australia or if you were Canada, you would be in, in um, you would be keen for a Kansas arrangement. Like what was in it for, for those countries from a geopolitical perspective? Sure. And you know, I thought the case was really quite compelling, and that really, you know, got got me on board. And you know, been following it ever since. Remain ever hopeful. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, your um, your professors probably have an awful lot in in, in common with. My professor, I went to college in the USA last year now, just graduated, and I bore most of the English and political science professors with endless series of articles on why the Commonwealth and the realms and the Kansas were the absolute future. No, they weren't in the past, and it's better for everybody, etc., 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 and bored everybody stiff. But <laughs> they, made for ex- they made for excellent articles, which Ted very kindly posted as well. So that was on his, art, on his blog. The, um, oh, yeah. they, they, they were excellent. They were excellent, Isaac. They they were worth publishing. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you, Ted. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Yes. Yeah, so, no. It is. It's. I find many people I, I speak to about Kanzuk. It's there's an awful lot about of simple family. Sort of. It, it comes by osmosis. It's sort of. It's not so much the sort of the eureka moment as more a sort of. Well, my family's always been here, and it sort of slowly builds up to the moment. Sort of standing on the shoulders of giants, we find ourselves actually standing on the shoulders of giants, giants, and saying, "Oh, look, we can see a great distance here. This isn't this is the great new policy." Yes, absolutely. I mean, certainly looking from a, an immigration perspective, it just baffles my mind to think that you know you go back a, a few decades and our countries were so much closer, and especially when you look at the the harm that Britain leaving, well, joining the EEC, sorry, caused to Australia and New Zealand. I think it really I was quite quite almost criminal in a sense, and I think we uh we owe a lot to those countries, not so much in terms of you know anything concrete but in terms of just making up uh what they had to go through as a result of our um of our our decision back in the seventies absolutely yes I, I quite quite agree and of course it wasn't just Kansas. I'm reminded of the um the great comments that they are his name currently leader at the moment the first independent the uh, first independent leader of Ghana I wonder if one of you chaps could remind me. Nkrumah. Excellent, thank you. Well, his, uh, I remember finding his statements and speeches on why Britain joined the EU was a disaster for the working man and the Commonwealth as a whole. He viewed it as very interesting as sort of a, an underpinning of continuation of racism, which is an interesting perspective to look at. Well, I suppose if it's given geographical, one can understand that. But anyway, it obviously did not help, uh, as you say, Australia, New Zealand, or most of the Commonwealth. Mm. I mean, the racism angle is always a interesting one when it comes to Kanzuk or when you come to when it comes to you know the UK departure from the EU because it just in either sense it what uh, the people that say this 
I was saying it doesn't really hold up to any scrutiny at all. But unfortunately, exactly. it is that constant, uh, that constant bludgeon that we're uh, being bat- we're battered with quite quite unreasonably. Yeah, so sometimes sometimes one could remind one of a parrot, but <laughs> anyway. Mm, yeah. Excellent. And talking about parrots, we can continue on to a subject that I'm sure a great many of us now know as simply the virus, the um the COVID lockdown and vaccine rollout, because that's definitely what's been going on this month and last month and and when we are standing. So we're sort of wondering how health is a policy that Kansas could improve, Kansas operation interoperability between the four countries could benefit, not just themselves, but the rest of the world. And positioned on lockdowns and the various vaccines and that sort of stuff. So Brent, would you like to um, jump off on that with a statement or, or some comments? How you how you see it in Canada? Well, uh, uh, yeah, uh, sure. Uh, from our perspective, uh, and again, I, I don't think that there's anything going on in Canada that is any different than what anyone else is experiencing, uh, maybe save for the UK that uh, has already undergone the rollout of the Pfizer virus, uh, f- Pfizer vaccine, not the virus, the vaccine. Um, the virus we have to be very careful on that. Um, yes. uh, it was great to see that. My own perspective is that uh, if we're if we're looking at COVID, I'm not going to get into anything about lockdowns, uh, pro or con. There are a lot of very, very passionate views on both sides. But if we're looking, yeah. if we're looking at the issue in terms of a public health challenge, every country in the world was sitting on the starting line of a marathon race, uh, and the finish line is when we all get herd immunity and I'll, I'll go into that a little further in a moment, but the starters pistol went off when, uh, Mrs. Keenan of Enniskillen received her, uh, COVID vaccine. That was the moment when every country in the world heard the starters pistol and we were off. Now to those people who are familiar with the phrase herd immunity is essentially a term used by public health officials to determine how much of the population needs to have some immunity to a virus in order to head off a pandemic. So we always talk about how effective, uh, you know, you you take into account that not everybody's going to get the vaccine. But, But what percentage of the population do you need to have vaccinated in order to at least achieve a level where you can be pretty sure we're not going through what we are now. And I had seen that uh, the one uh, medical center affiliated with the University of Texas had pegged herd immunity at about 70% for a, a defined community. I would say a defined community would be a place where you had pretty strong borders. You were able to determine who the people were and you didn't have a lot of movement in and out. Uh, so if you're assuming 70% for herd immunity, what you're saying is the starter pistol goes off, you start immunizing your population, and until 70% of your population hits herd immunity, you're really not in a position where you may even be considering to make masks optional or to start reducing a lot of the restrictions. You know, for Canada, we're 38 million people. That, that number is about 26 million. Now, um, our own government is talking about uh, having immunization levels 
that would hit that mark around September. And they didn't, they didn't uh, use the 70% mark. They were saying that maybe by the end of September, by the end of third quarter, uh, we would have 100% immunization. But again, those themes are similar. I would say this is important, and this is how I'll, I'll finish up on this point. The countries that come out of this the quickest are the ones that are going to have an opportunity to start rebuilding. You're going to have to rebuild your economy, because even as we lower the restrictions, you know, like we'll, we may ease up a bit on the lockdown, we're still not at 100%. There are still people who are not going to be able to work. Uh, they may not have a job to go back to. And, exactly. and countries have borrowed massively for a lot of uh, relief programs uh, for individuals and for businesses. There's a lot of lost tax revenue. The countries that come out of this the quickest, i.e. cross the finish line at herd immunity, are the ones who are going to be able to recover the fastest. So this is a public health challenge, which everyone is, you know, we're all racing against each other. And I, I think that with Kanzik, we need to look at the next time we're in this and maybe rather than treat each other as individual uh uh, rivals in a race, we work more like a relay team, passing the baton, helping each other. Uh, but, uh, you know, that's that's my own personal view on this. I think that once countries hit herd immunity, that's going to be interesting to see what happens afterward. Sure, sure. And uh, there's also there's also the importance of, of, of sharing early on in the pandemic, there was the importance of hospital beds and ventilators and all that, and, P- and there's the PPE crisis. Absolutely. Yes. yes. You you raise a good point, uh, Isaac, because, uh, you know, and I I think because we're so we're so excited about the possibilities of uh, not only the Pfizer vaccine, but, you know, the Moderna one, the uh, Oxford AstraZeneca one. we're, we're so caught up in that. And I think we're so fatigued by COVID. We forget about early on the lack of PPE and, and the scramble for ventilators and the like. And that exposed a great deal of uh, issues. Even, even going down to where uh, in Canada, a number of distilleries and breweries were actually converting over to make hand sanitizer because it was such <laughs> a run. And, and, you know, we... You know, it, it seems like a lifetime away, even though it was, you know, scarcely six months ago. So though I think that there's a lot that we need to take out of this. Um, even the fact that uh, a lot of our antibiotics are not, you know, our capacity to produce a lot of, I would say, strategically important reserves of PPE, antibiotics, and other materials um we we need to talk about that and and even if people argue well you know canada doesn't have the critical mass to make it work certainly in concert with other countries we can have strategic reserves and we should really look at uh, partnering that way we we already have the kanzik infrastructure you know you could talk about the five eyes but also another uh, a number of informal agreements this just cries out for that type of uh cooperation coordination and leadership exactly because i mean if we were honest this is and as we'll bring you in germany this is really this is a um, this is a defense situation and i think also another area that can really has an important area to shine is not only early on with ppa and now 
situation. It's striking that striking the balance as the um, the herald of not only responsibility but also human rights and freedom of choice in this area. Because I think we can get too wrapped up in it was the, in the silver bullets solving this situation. Like it's all about the vaccine or it's all about the lockdown. And, and in the meantime, because human rights and individual freedoms can get trampled down in the process of everybody needs to be safe again. And I think one of the things that Kansas can say is no, we don't need to treat it like the world like an absolute police state. There are there are other ways not only to ensure that we have public health again, absolutely, but also to ensure that the individual is not trampled down in the onrush of, well, Louis the Fourteenth, Le Tasse moi. So I think that that is an area where Kansas can stick its very much stick its banner in and say, look, we can we can solve almost all problems stronger together and we can do so while ensuring that human rights, basic liberal freedoms are all upheld. But Ted, what's your opinion on this? Um, thank you, Isaac. I, I, um, I, I agree with what you and Brent said. I, I think right now the focus to learn from the pandemic, Kansas-wise, would be to focus on the future. And I think you could say that in a couple ways. Um, the first is coordinating, say, vaccine distribution or any kind of distribution of medical supplies quickly. And Absolutely. I think that can happen through, through Kansas cooperation. Um, you know, like, like Brent said, people have strong opinions on, on both sides. I, I, certainly, I certainly do. But you need to, for the future, be able to have the ability to distribute medical information and medical supplies rapidly. And I think the rest, the world was not prepared. But if you have the Kansas nations working together for first world, sophisticated, advanced economies, looking at ways to distribute vaccines, looking at ways to distribute uh, drugs that could help with with issues, uh, medical knowledge, uh, research, I think that would be the way forward um, in terms of future health crises. You could almost argue for a type of five eyes for the the health, right? Absolutely. Um, you know, and, and, and that could be done in conjunction with the United States or not. But but either way, the, the, the four Kansas nations could definitely do that. I think right now, and, and as you said, Isaac, there should also be a renewed commitment to human rights between the four. Um, because, you know, obviously some things got a little silly fast. Um, we... We need to look at structures to make this work. And a Kansas structure for health would be a good idea. I mean, why, you know, maybe Kansas can, when, when say, Boris Johnson talks to Jacinda Arden or Scott Morrison or Justin Trudeau, they could talk about a mutual health response. Um, it, it, it's been an eye-opening because the, the truth is, given, now granted, 2020 is a little bit of a pullback from this, but before 2020, whole world was basically just moving closer and closer together. It was flying together, uh, meeting one another. And, and with that comes disease. So Absolutely. actually, Absolutely. So, so the key is going to be as part of the Kanzuk agreement, if, if, and when hopefully it's reached, there's going to need to be a health component. And um, COVID has definitely shown that, that there's going to need to be COVID. Uh, that there's going to need to be health cooperation. So, I think that's what we can take from that, uh, from this year, this you know, year that was hard on everybody, and then hopefully um, 
health will be prominent. I mean, because you look at both four countries, both co four countries have top of the line hospitals, um, research facilities, doctors. I mean, the Oxford vaccine is, is going to be one of the main, I mean, I believe it's the third vaccine approved. In the world, if you exclude the Russian Sputnik one, which I'm sure is very effective. You, uh, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> there the, comes a point the, where you sort of wonder how much political willpower has is the is the active ingredient in in the cocktail, right? Right, exactly. But I'm just saying, people trust the University of Oxford. I mean, and and um, if you look at Queensland, they said our our vaccine isn't good enough, and they moved that to the side. That shows that the standards are high, as opposed to say Russia. I don't mean to pick on Russia, but come on, but the, with their vaccine. But like, um, yeah, I mean, we the standards are so high that Kansas could set a health example to the rest of the world as well. So obviously 2020, not a good year for finances, business, or health. But um, I think that it, it provides some insight and ability for Kansas to shape its future relationship. Right. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm just looking here. I, I confess it is Wikipedia, but this reminds me of the Technical Cooperation Program, which is the um, uh, cooperation, defense, science, and technology matters between Kansas plus the U.S. The traditional Five Eyes. In the areas which they operate, cooperate on include national security and civil defense. Well, I'm not sure about you, but I think a lot of what we've seen in response to this pandemic is very simply basic civil defense. In the old, really, absolutely, Isaac. 100%. It's just, it's just that's civil defense is more Cold War language compared to the national health. But yeah. <laughs> and, and Jeremy, well, you, you had the first word, so now I guess you can have the last word on this subject. <laughs> Certainly. Uh, so, Hark, back to some of what Ted was saying about um, you know, the Five Eyes intelligence perspective and uh, close coordination on certain health aspects. I think if you go back to the beginning of the pandemic. I mean, really, this is the pandemic that should never have happened, right? Um, Absolutely. The, the, the fact that it escaped uh, China was an intelligence failure, and Indeed. clearly, there's there is some some uh, some gap in our intelligence picture that allowed that to happen, which might have actually been taken up by the by re reliance on the World Health Organization, which is an organization that, in general, I'm very supportive of. I mean, I think uh, cooperation on a multilateral scale on health is generally quite a good thing Absolutely. but as has seemed to have been the case um china d did seem to have influenced uh, that organization perhaps more than it should and i think one of the the key areas in which the Kansas countries could have and should in the future cooperate is simply making sure that those the organizations like the who are performing as they should so, so at the very least if things do take this direction again in the future and a pandemic emerges when really it should be nipped in the bud quite quickly that our four countries are you know first of all they're ready to to tell the rest of the world what's going on and raise the alarm and also make sure that we're as best prepared as possible for it uh but from a covid perspective i'm, I'm very interested to on your, your all your opinions on how countries like australia and new zealand new zealand specifically are going to actually get out of this because New Zealand in particular is in the the rather envious position in a way of not having uh, 
let COVID in. But then you look at some of the vaccines, and I think, I mean, the Pfizer one is, of course, the most cumbersome one to 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 apply. But at the same time, it's uh, also the most successful. Whilst the Oxford one is, assuming it gets approved in the next few days, um, you know, it's got a lower a lower um, I can't think of the word a lower working rate. Let's go with that uh, or success rate. Yeah. And I do wonder how a country like New Zealand that is now accepted that, you know, it's got to be no COVID in New Zealand. How will they escape that with vaccines that might allow 5, 10, 20% of cases to still uh, slip through the net? It just seems yeah. to me like New Zealand is stuck in a sort of um, between well, a rock and a hard place. Yes. It's sort of, do we, do, do, we open, do we open up and allow this? But we're all sort of, is that there's that, there's that terrifying concept of at what level do we say that economic cost is now too much for a number of cases or even worse fatalities it's that that, that horrible calculations mm. yeah i just wonder if new zealand is going to have to stay in this sort of isolated uh sort of reality much longer than the rest of the world because i just don't know how it will become politically acceptable to, to open new zealand up again unless the rest of the world has fully eliminated the virus. It just seems like a political hurdle that would be astronomically difficult to overcome. Yeah, and let's be honest. I mean, the whole world eliminating COVID was going to be—that's <laughs> a pretty high bar to set. Indeed, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I, I can't think—I can't think of too many diseases that have been eliminated. I mean, smallpox springs to mind, but I think that, smallpox and polio. Polio. But you know, they, they weren't as—they weren't endemic like. Uh, no. Well, so I think they're endemic, like COVID is. Well, actually, if I could chime in, the uh, the uh, the University of Texas numbers I would stated, um, and that was seventy uh, percent herd immunity for a uh, defined community. They had pegged the global number to be around forty to fifty percent. So they they believe that the planet would have herd immunity if we had forty to 50% of the population immune. And and Jeremy raises the good point. Uh, you know, the, the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines have a success rate, they say, of around 95%. So you know that every 100 people you vaccinate, five, it's not going to work. Uh, the, the Oxford AstraZeneca one, I think, is closer to 75%. So again, 25% of people. Uh, there was also some indication that people who have allergies uh, uh, of certain uh, certain materials shouldn't be taking the vaccine. So exactly. um, in order to hit that number, you have to overshoot the number. So, uh, you know, if you need, for example, 70% herd immunity, well, how far past 70% do you have to go in order to get to it? So... You know, in a country like Canada, you'd say herd immunity is about 26 and a half million people. Do we have to have at least a minimum of 30 million vaccinations or at least people vaccinated, bearing in mind two doses? Would you have to have that? And again, you know, if some people are getting a 95% a successful vaccine and a 75%, you're playing a lot in numbers. And... Um, and and I and I think the issue about New Zealand is very important because, aside from the efficacy, and the potency of these vaccines, you are getting into an issue where people are setting a bar. If you have set the bar that you want to be COVID free, 
and and I'm reminded of the first time I traveled to the UK with my par- with my grandparents, and there were all the signs at this time in the late '70s about being rabies free, and and just yes. wanting to have complete, you know, no cases whatsoever. Um, you know, when you you hit a situation where you are decrying, you're setting up a rule that says we don't want that COVID whatsoever. Nobody does, but. If you can legitimately uh, say that you do not want any any case whatsoever, you, you know the alarm bells. If one person in New Zealand has COVID, all the alarm bells go off, and all the red lights are flashing. If <laughs> if if public policy is built around that type of threshold, it is. And I think uh, Jeremy was right to say, uh, when do you come out? Would you ever come out? Uh, I think with a lot of with a lot of uh, things, you know, when you're you're dealing with public policy, it's never perfect, and there may be and there may be situations where if it how much imperfection are you willing to accept? And this this is going to be the thing that every government on the planet is going to have to reconcile with. How many cases are you willing to allow in your society? in order to open up again. I mean, are, are, you know, in in a country like ours with 38 million people, what, how many is too many? And that's important because the longer you're locked down, the longer this goes on, the greater the cost, the greater the cost to the public purse, but also in human lives. And, and, you know, we're, we're not even just talking about the, the, the cost of COVID directly, but the fact that, you know, uh, suicide, depression, um, yes. just a substance abuse and just, just the fact that people are disconnected and, 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 you know, and that's not even taking into account the economic toll where there are people who can't work. They, they don't have the luxury of being able to sit at a laptop with Wi-Fi and do their job and still, uh, pull a paycheck. So how long do you want to go? And, and there will come a point in time where you say that the, the possible, the po- the number of people who are victims of the uh, the medicine is more than the, the the disease. I mean, if you're in a situation Absolutely. where you say you you have a handful of COVID uh, uh, illnesses, but you have all of these people who are suffering enormously, uh, even talk about hospitals having to delay certain surgeries and uh, procedures. If you are, say, a cancer patient and you're wanting to go in and get chemo. And you, because, because the system is so geared toward dealing with COVID, uh, you may have a delay in getting your radiotherapy or your, uh, uh, chemotherapy. I mean, what good's that? Again, people have to sit down and do the numbers and it, it's very distasteful to a lot of people because, you know, we're all human beings. We're, we're not numbers. We're people with names and right. relationships and, 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 and such, and so on. but 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 it ends up where if you have 30 to 40 million people in a country at what point in time do you say we can't do this any longer we have to open the doors well in some respects things are making it easier at least i know where i am although the numbers have been they're going up and down the cases are high and low there have been no fatalities since the spring so the 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 um the death rate is a, is dropping. Hopefully, one day it will come as pretty close 
to flu or even or even less than that we don't know but we can i think also the, the goal posts the goal post shift as well so which which makes it more confusing but absolutely there there also the, there's the, there are a whole host of costs there's the cost of lockdown there's the, there's the costs of, of the side of nothing else the side effects to the oxford vaccines have seen they had to re restructure because you can't give it to people who are who are allergic to things aspects in it because it's because it hasn't, when nothing, nothing's been tested along. We're, we're, we're making things up as we go along. And the big thing here is that we need to have, to, when you decide information based on this, you need accurate, actionable information at all times. I think this is the key part of Kanzuk because we can trust each other much more. Though there won't be information, won't be subverted by nations or individuals or groups for whom it is in their interest to not to lose face on the world stage or to appear that it's not their problem or try and or shift the blame or pass the buck and all that sort of stuff. So I think that's also an area. But I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad, Brent, you mentioned the economics area because we also have, and what hopefully should, this should be an excellent news somewhere at the top of the newspaper, but hopefully, sadly it probably may have been dropped down to a little sub note under all the COVID information is the um, Canada-UK trade continuation agreement. This might be heralded as the first step towards the... Um, Ka'uk, the first and the last bit of Kanzuk. So, uh, Jeremy, what's your opinion, position on that? And do you, have you have you seen much about it? How is it likely going to affect things? Or is it going to affect things at all for yourself? Well, I can't say I personally do much uh, trade with Canada. I've yet, I've yet to look at the details of the treaty. But uh, I mean, my, my general theory towards Kanzuk is, is, I mean, the idea of a, a solid proposal is wonderful. But I think these sort of of deals like this happening piecemeal bit by bit are what is ultimately going to build us towards a what might not might not be Kanzuk in name but will be Kanzuk in reality so you know it'll start with the uh, this continuation uh, trade agreements which is of course a fantastic thing and i very much hope uh, it actually the increased awareness will lead to more trade between Canada and the UK but i think those sort of agreements between uh, the UK, Canada, Australia, etc., bit by bit, will actually create the sort of framework that we are all hoping to see. Uh, as regards to the specific treaty, I, I think Brent might uh, be able to outknowledge me on that yeah. one. But the fact that it's been so easily um, agreed is a fantastic sign of things to come. And I'm very glad to see that the Trudeau government and the Johnson government have been coordinating so well together. Absolutely, absolutely. Correct me if, if I'm wrong, Brent. Uh, so far, this this agreement of the treaty more or less means everything will continue the same post Brexit, but in the future, when the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, or FCDO now, is not being run off its feet so much, that a more holistic or better Kansas agreement or Canada UK agreement can be made. Is that correct? That is my understanding. Uh, what we're looking at is ostensibly a rollover of CETA. So, of course. Um, as everyone knows, uh, there has been essentially a free trade condition between Canada and the UK by virtue of CETA since 2017-2018. Uh, yes. uh, one of the benefits of this is that it's rolling over conditions uh, that already exist. So if you are someone in Canada exporting to the UK or vice versa, um, you're already functioning, uh, functioning under a certain uh, type of uh, uh, regime in terms of uh, whether or not it's free of tariffs. 
all, all of the issues that affect trade in terms of uh, the flows, those, those are going to remain. Uh, it, it's always good to do one better, but I think that if you're a business person who is shipping uh, product to uh, Manchester from Toronto, uh, to know that whatever rules were in place on December 31st are going to be there a week later, the, the confidence that that breeds is extremely important. There is, no, there is no doubt in my mind that we can do better than CETA. Uh, obviously, Kanzik would be better than Sita. Um, <laughs> Indeed. Now, for, now, now, of course, uh, you know, whether or not uh, everyone is in agreement in Kanzik, I mean, obviously, the Conservatives are are confident enough in Kanzik to make it part of their policy platform. Uh, yes. The Liberals have not, but they understand the importance of Canada-UK trade and are committed to seeing something better than Sita. And when you figure that CETA really was Canada negotiating with 28 different countries, all with different ideas and interests, um, it, it isn't hard. And, and I always, and I said this a little bit in the last episode, that when you get these large agreements, they are always the agreement of the lowest common denominator. So Absolutely. every country that you bring into it that has a different agenda and a different perspective, that has to be figured. So there's there's a constant watering of the wine. And so it, it just, you know, at some point in time, you have to ask whether it's wine or just colored water. And um, I think to a certain extent, CETA reflects that lo lowest common denominator amongst the 28 EU members and Canada. So you have 29 different perspectives uh in terms of what's what's fair what what's free trade uh what what's a economic interest being able cool. to boil it down to two parties obviously we can do better but at a time when britain is just repatriated its ability to negotiate on its own behalf and is going at a breakneck speed trying to set up um continuation deals like we ha like they have with Canada now as well as new deals you know and and, and let's not forget the uh, ongoing uh, discussions with Australia and New Zealand I indeed. Would, or indeed yeah or I, indeed, yeah, I, I mean I mean let's, let's think yeah. about it uh, Canada's been doing this all along for a very long time and I would think that our Department of International Trade would be hard pressed to have to coordinate that much activity going on simultaneously. So when you look at the British perspective, I, I think it's right and reasonable to say uh, where we can where we can continue, let's continue. Where something new has to be built, let's do that. And and this gives us an opportunity to look at things uh, in the in the in the clearness of day when there's not a rush. Again stabilizing the situation i think was uh the important thing but you know whether or not uh whether or not the people in charge in ottawa are fans of kanzik uh you know i know that we can do better i think everyone agrees that we can do better but giving us the time and the latitude to actually do it without a rush being able to put full resources in on both sides and do a decent job of it I, I think that's what's needed. Um, again, from my perspective, it would be easier to just uh, uh, leave the continuation treaty in place until such time as we could commit to having uh, four-way talks on Kanzik. 
Um, it, it would just seem sad to me to go through the negotiation of a trade continuation deal, then to spend the next one to two years negotiating a Canada-UK, or as I'd call it, a Canuck free trade deal, only to turn around and want to try to harmonize that in a broader Kansas deal. Um, to me, that would be a waste. Uh, I would be perfectly happy, personally, to see the uh, deal that's already been negotiated. Just leave that until we're ready to do Kansas. Absolutely, quite. There are two things pop into mind when you said that. The, the first one was um, that quote, a wonderful quote from Yes Minister, where um, Sir Humphrey is ask, asking the minister, the minister asked Sir Humphrey about why we joined the EU. And the um, Sir Humphrey states very, very cynically that the whole point was to ensure that the EU couldn't do anything. So for that reason, the Foreign Office targeted as many countries to join, generally to ensure that there was enough chaos and that nothing could ever be done and the EU could never be a threat to Britain. So <laughs> that, that, was the, that was the expression that, 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 that definitely popped to mind there. So and the other one, I guess, is uh, Sir Robert Watson Watts' famous quote, uh, that he was in charge of the development of radar, or what became radar, RDF as it was known in those days was that he wanted the policy of he wanted the second best today instead of waiting for the best now. We want the second best day, which I think could probably describe Britain's probably policy at this time, scrambling to try and have everything set up while our European partners are, shall we say, less than helpful? We, You know, we had a version of that here many years ago. Uh, it, was, it was in the lead-up to uh, the repatriation of the Canadian Constitution in the early 80s. And we always have had this back and forth between Ottawa and the provinces. And there used to be a joke about uh, uh, asking a Canadian and a, a German and a, French, and a French citizen about uh, elephants and telling them to do a paper. And uh, the German would write the elephant, the drinking habits of the elephant. And the French uh, researcher wrote the mating uh, history and, and, and activities of the elephant. And the Canadian wrote the elephant, a federal or provincial responsibility. <laughs> Indeed. So all about who and what. So a lot of it depends on from where, from where you are standing. And how how does it look like from how where you are standing, Ted? How would you say, would you see this the, the economic ties progressing or moving forwards? I, I agree with Brent. Um, I, I I think that it's good that there was a, um, a continuity agreement signed. I was very happy actually that the UK made such a big deal out of it because they didn't have to. Because they no. made a lot of, lots of people. I mean, Vietnam. Uh, was recent uh, Singapore, who's an important Commonwealth ally. I mean, they, they've yeah. made lots of deals, and they haven't made a big deal of it. But in the UK, Canada uh, agreement, they made a deal of having Boris Johnson and Liz Truss on there with Justin Trudeau and the name of the trade minister. Her name escapes me. Brent would know who she is. Uh, Mary, um, okay, I'll chime in. Mary Ng is the uh, Canadian minister. Yeah, and. Um, as far as I know, they didn't do that with any nation. So I, I think that the positives of the agreement, yes, I think we could do better. Yes, Brent's point that we should probably, not probably, we should do Kanzik is better. But um, in terms of, I'm glad they signed the agreement. 
Um, I, I think that's the way to go um, for now. And then it will it will get better. But I, I, I what I was more impressed with was the publicity side of it. I mean, because, you know, like I said, the UK has had lots of deals. With lot, I think we're now at 70-something. Liz Truss, as I said on last week, is a star. She's tirelessly hardworking. But the... Um, but the, 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 the big deal they made out of the agreement with Canada, I think, was, was very important. And I was happy to see it. And um, I'm hoping that it's built upon. Yeah, no, I, I hope so, too. So, which is excellent. It's, it's, an, it's an excellent stepping stone, and there's a continuation. It also shows how swiftly things can be merely continued and rolled over, provided there's goodwill on both sides of the negotiating table. Cough, cough. I guess that's the old expression that many have had for Kanzuk. One of my favorite quotes about Kanzuk is that family is better than neighbors. Right, exactly. <laughs> and, for, and for you, Jeremy, it's quite literally a family better than neighbors, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Couldn't be uh, more the case. Excellent. Well, so I think that's an excellent set of conversations we've come to. I'd like to thank all four of you, for all four of us, for coming along, three of you, and four, four includes you, our esteemed and beloved listeners who are listening to our second episode. I can say we have a treat. The next episode is a defense. So I'm looking forward to that. And in the meantime, I would like to thank all of you, Brent, Jeremy, and Ted, for coming back to the Kanzak podcast here at the Globe on the Weekends. And look forward to seeing and speaking to you again next week. Thanks thank again. you, Isaac. Thank you, Isaac. Thanks, Isaac. My pleasure, and thank you, listeners.